welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm really excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today's plant breeding story comes from Dr. Alison Bentley, who has just taken up a new post as Programme Director of the Global Wheat Programme at CIMIT. She previously worked at the UK-based organisation NIAB, or National Institute of Agricultural Botany. It was fascinating to hear about her early work identifying wild and land race ancestors to expand the genetic diversity available to wheat breeders how pre-breeding feeds through to the crops that farmers grow, and her tremendously international work across four continents. I hope you enjoy it. Alison, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks Thanks for having me. So I'm a plant geneticist and plant breeder. Uh, Originally from Australia, uh, currently based in Cambridge in the UK, uh, and about to head to Simit in Mexico as the program director of the global wheat program and tell me a bit about your background how did where did you grow up where did you go to school and how did you get into plants yeah I grew up in in Sydney in Australia so so a very different uh, climate and type to to what I'm now accustomed to in the UK Uh, and I I became aware of and interested in plants that are at a relatively young age Uh, my grandfather was a great amateur a plant breeder and and plant scientist kind of tinkering with plants in the in the back garden and many things about plants fascinated me quite early on uh, so we used to spend a lot of time um, bushwalking and and you know a lot of the the native plant species in Australia have really interesting survival and adaptation mechanisms so some, sometimes you have to treat the seed with fire in order for it to germinate anyway I found this endlessly fascinating and and was forever borrowing people's smoking ovens for fish to, to kind of try and germinate so some native plants seeds for me it's always been about that biology and actions and so were you was it always going to be genetics and plant breeding or did you consider other angles um, of biology plant science food production at any point yeah, I think it was always going to be biological sciences. Uh, initially, I, I thought, well, you know, veterinary science scientists make a lot more money than uh, plant scientists or crop scientists. I uh, got a bit of experience in the, the animal science space and decided definitely not for me um, uh, in terms of the things you can cut up and what happens to them. Um, so, so very much... Um, yeah, I think it was always going to, to be plants or soil. I was really fascinated with the soils of Australia, which are, are really um, complex and also contribute a lot to the underpinnings of food production. Um, but I remember as a relatively young high school student having the opportunity to go to the Plant Breeding Institute in Sydney on a kind of uh, extension weekend. They called it an agricultural camp. Uh, and, and we did this basic DNA prep um, where you kind of... Um, do a very quick, um, use a very quick method to to extract DNA or essentially the proteins surrounding DNA. And I remember just being in this lab 
as a high school student on a weekend and having this Eppendorf tube with this this bit of congealed protein in the bottom of a tube and just being like, wow, this is unbelievable. Not only can you kind of see biology, but then you can go in the lab and you can you can pull out the genetic information. Uh, and that really sealed it for me, that it, that exposure and, and understanding that, that genetics was also a tractable component of, of biology. So, so that really, that really signed it, signed it for me. Brilliant. And it's, and it's really evident, even, you know, just the way you talk about it and you describe it, that it's um, something that it gives you huge amounts of energy and enthusiasm and curiosity. Yeah, definitely. And I think that same weekend, we got to try out driving tractors, which everyone else was super excited about. And I was like, oh, my goodness, and kind of managed to maneuver into a fence. So I definitely realized quite early on that that probably wasn't going to be the, the route, my route into agriculture. <laughs> Good stuff. And and you're currently the um, program director for Simmet's Global Wheat Program, which we, we mentioned at the start. Why is wheat such an interesting crop for you to work on? Have you always worked on wheat or is this something you've chosen more recently? Yeah, so I've always worked on, on wheat. And even during my undergraduate um, career, I was I was really became focused on, on wheat and arable staple crops um, very early on for the simple fact that they are really the basis of, of food and nutritional security for a large proportion of the world's population. You know, there are many very nutritionally diverse foods and we're encouraged to eat diverse diets. But really at the core of that is being able to have have something that you can grow on scales. So wheat's grown on 200 million plus hectares around the world. And half of that is in the developing world. So you have this huge demand uh, for wheat as a primary product into processing, you know, all the things we eat in our day to day lives, bread, breakfast cereal, biscuits, cakes, um, pasta. But yeah, you've also got this angle of this is really the the primary product that a large proportion of the world's population rely on. And, and really in this, again, coming back to this biology in action, that we can do some really exciting science, we can do really exciting genetics, uh, and we really should be using those tools to try and in, improve the food products, the primary uh, agricultural products that, that go into our food systems uh, and really are the basis for ensuring that people have access to enough food uh, to eat and enough food to, to feed their families and, and to make an income from. And, and yield growth has been slower in wheat than some other major crops in, I don't know, the last decade or so. Why is that? And what can we do about it? So wheat is a genetically complex crop and the, and the breeding process, uh, it's an inbreeding crop. So, so we don't have large scale commercial hybrids, which is where you see in some crops such as maize, corn, um, big jumps in, in the yield. So year on year, breeders are making lots of crosses and selections uh, and moving forward the yields of the varieties that are available to farmers to grow. Uh, and, and this rate ha- does go up over time. Um, but there are there are several reasons why it, you know we don't see an acceleration of that increase, which we call the genetic gain, essentially. Uh, and I think the, there are quite a few reasons behind that. So wheat has a very complex genome, so it's very difficult to to be able to use uh, genomic based selection tools um, in anger. I think that's changing, and that's something where we're really looking at how do we use these these tools and technologies to accelerate our, our genetic gain over time. 
Um, and also because of the, the production environments which wheat are grown in. So wheat isn't a very high value crop, or obviously depends on the context. Um, but convincing a, a farmer to, to apply more inputs to, to get more yield uh, doesn't always make financial sense. And so there is this optimization question. What's the price that you're going to get for a ton of wheat versus the input cost that, that you that you have to put into it to to get that that return, whether it be on the on the volume or on the quality of the grain? So it's so it's a complicated uh, answer to a, to a relatively simple question, but I think we do see from breeding year-on-year year gains um, in most parts of the world. I think there's work to be done, and that's a big part of, of my role at, at CIMIT and the role of the program and, and several of the projects is really asking this question, how do we make sure we're accelerating this year-to-year year year, uh, genetic gain from the breeding program? And I guess it's a moving target as well, because with climate change and changes to, you know, rainfall distributions and so on, it's it's not like it's improving that that yield against a constant baseline, is it? Exactly. I mean, the breeding process takes a number of years, depending on your, your registration system that you have in a country to allow varietal release. But that, that process takes, uh, you know, can take five to seven to 10 years to get a variety from a first cross into a farmer's field. So in the context of, of seasonal variation, it's actually quite a challenge just to get a variety out, let alone a variety that's able to respond to, to very variable or changing climatic conditions. The Simmet Wheat Program is really about future climate resilience and heat and drought. And, you know, there's a lot of modeling data that, that gives you an indication of what the wheat production areas of the future will look like. Um, and then a lot of research that still needs to be done to say, how do we actually match, make sure we're, we're future, future-proofing our varieties. I first met you when you were at NIAB, which is what um, the National Institute of Agricultural Botany. Is, is it, was it working at NIAB that brought you to Cambridge or were you in Cambridge before that? Yeah, that, I, I came to the UK uh, and to, to Cambridge uh, for the position at, at NIAB, finishing my, my PhD in Australia at the University of Sydney uh, and really wanting to, to move into the space of pre-competitive um, pre-breeding. Um, which is the role that I, I had uh, at NIAB. And, and that role was really interesting because it identified a gap at that time, so, so 12 or so years ago, um, with the privatisation of plant breeding in the UK between academic sector and all of these really exciting discoveries, fundamental discoveries that we see in universities and institutes, and the, the translation of that to the, the private sector who are producing uh, the final varieties, who are doing the breeding. And so the NIAB program was really set up to to bridge that gap to say what 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 and how can we take forward innovations from the lab and apply them into a breeding context and deliver them in terms of germplasm or tools or or resources to commercial plant breeding to really address this question that we talked about before about how we ensure that yield gains um, are increasing over time. And how are you doing that? Can you give me an example of how that looks in your projects? One of the really interesting things that we worked on at NIAB was about expanding the amount of genetic diversity which is available um, for wheat breeders to use. So genetic variation is, is really important because you want to have, whether it's climate resilience or 
better pest resistance, disease resistances, you need to have available variation for those things. Uh, and in the modern, modern pool of material that's used in a breeding program, there is the question about whether you have su sufficient variation for, you know, for the different plasticities and responses to, to changing temperatures or the ability to grow at a lower level of nitrogen input. So we've been really looking at the use of wild relatives and how we um, mine the diversity in, in the wild relatives of wheat um, and, and make it available for plant breeding programs uh, to use very much from, from the angle of public good. You know, it's very, um, it's very useful for everyone if breeding programs have access to, to more diverse but still high performing material that's being characterized and which can be then used in an informed way in the breeding process. When, when you I'm curious, this is a, an ignorant question, but you know, no such thing as a stupid question. When you talk about looking for a wild variety um, or a wild ancestor, are you, are you visiting farms and, and particularly smallholder farms and saying, what variety are you growing? Or are you, um, you know, literally looking for things that have fallen by the wayside and have sort of grown up and multiplied? Yeah. So, the, so, so Simit in Turkey have done a lot of work on land races, which is the first the first point. So go so actually talking to farmers, seeing what's grown on their on their farms. I think the work that I did on wild relatives was actually crawling around uh, grasslands. You know, think early early plant hunters, um, really kind of driving along a road, slamming on the brakes, and then clambering into the undergrowth. Um, and I did a lot of that in my. Um, in the final year of my undergraduate, I did a, a project um, with Lester Burgess, really looking at um, wild relatives and, and native Australian grass species. So I'd had quite a lot of experience of that, of this these kind of country drives where suddenly you slam on the brakes and everyone gets out of the car and you kind of climb up a hill and, and try and look for these um, these species, which is super cool because it's kind of at the interface of botany and uh, biology and genetics. Um, so, it, so in Turkey, we did um, a bit of both. So surveying on farmers' fields, so looking for, for pathogens, specific pathogens in the wheat crop, but then also in the, in the native grasslands, which is, which is an amazing thing to do. We were working with um, colleagues from universities in Turkey. Um, so at places like Çetinhulyuk, which is the badly, my bad pronunciation of, you know, one of the oldest sites of human civilization. So really going to those sites and saying at these sites where uh, there's evidence for this very early kind of human activity, was there, is there also evidence for the early relatives of, or ancestors of our crop species? So then you kind of see how these things come together. So you had kind of humans um, starting to kind of change their behaviors and also these wild relatives. And you start to see how these um, evolutionary and domestication aspects of, of plant genetics really, yeah, I guess it's a real visual on those, those things. So you've got humans developing and, and plants developing into, into crops. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. 
So, so both NIAB and CIMIT are in this pre-competitive space, and you've sort of outlined what the role of that space is in terms of generating new diversity or new varieties that then can go into commercialization. But, but can you sort of talk us through, if you're working in a not-for-profit organization, what is the step that then gets from an innovation or a variety or an improvement that that your team have come up with and something that's grown in a field by a farmer? Yeah, and that's a great question. And, and it does vary depending on the, the geography. And obviously, I've been focused for the past 12 years on the UK, where we have a commercial um, wheat breeding sector, which is very engaged with research. And we've had a, really a privilege to have a really good two-way flow of information between the work we've been doing and the commercial breeders, which has allowed us to really kind of optimize um what our objectives are and how we deliver it into the private sector. And then obviously it's going into to a breeding process once it, once it gets to the, the private sector breeders. And, and so it will go through a pipeline, which could take an additional 10 years. So, you know, we do 10 years of work to get some diversity from our wild relatives into an advanced line. Uh, and then that goes into a breeding pipeline uh, and produces potentially produces a variety which would go into a farmer's field. And then I think in the in the CIMIT context, so we're obviously doing research and development with a focus on international development and international agriculture. So there we're really asking the question about what alleles, what traits, what genetics are, are most relevant to our partners uh, and the farmers that farm and, and live and produce uh, in the developing world, we we have very close relationships with the national programs there, which are the uh, agricultural systems of those countries. Uh, and there we provide germplasm. We provide, again, information on traits or, or ge genetic information, which supports those national programs in the process of uh, identifying promising material, putting it into crossing programs or directly releasing uh, the material. All this research requires funding. How does the funding influence what happens? As you described, it's often long-term projects, um, which projects are prioritised. Can you just explain a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I think it works differently in, in different places, obviously, and there's no one answer for all situations, but it is long-term public good research and i think there is always the question of of who pays for for that kind of research and and can it be paid for as a 10 year you know blank check uh, to achieve an objective which is obviously the the ideal for everyone in, in whatever sector they work in um but the, but there is that question of really this is what you're investing in um is that value over a long time frame um so we're really talking about um potentially a less quantifiable impact in terms of public good. The impact analyses that have been done, so CIMIT's done several rounds of impact analyses, and these always show a huge multiplier on, on the investment. In the case of, of CIMIT and the, the CGIAR uh, system, you know, this is, these are huge multipliers in terms of the money that goes into support for this research and development and, and breeding. Into, into livelihoods and a number of people reached by improved varieties or improved agricultural interventions. You know, particularly in the UK with a, a three-year three funding model, 
you're always having to, to make the case of this is scientifically excellent and it's also strategically relevant. But it's a, it's a constant uh, challenge, as it is for everyone in science, uh, trying to kind of make the value proposition for their work. Um, you know, there's, lo- there's lots of different ways and socioeconomic tools to, to measure that. But really, fundamentally, that investment is supporting the lives of those people living on less than $2 a day. Uh, and from that, for them, varieties that encapsulate all the latest science, you know, are the, are the ideal because then you're, you're delivering something with, with huge amounts of value that can have huge impact on livelihoods. You described right at the outset, you're Australian by birth. I know you through your work at NIAB in Cambridge in the UK. Um, before too long, you'll be moving to Mexico. And so I'm curious, did you did you always plan to be um, a citizen of the world? Or was it <laughs> one of those things that just happened? Yeah, I mean, I think if you grow up on an island, um, you're, you go one of two ways. Well, I'm sure there's a, there's a, there's a lot in between that. Um, but yeah, I guess I was always kind of curious um, to leave Australia and to really understand um, what happened in the, in, in the world. And I was very lucky. My, my father worked abroad. He worked in, in Indonesia on, on essentially similar international development projects, but in the space of ISO accreditation and how you, um, how you certify labs in the developing world to allow them to certify their systems as the basis of trade, you know, and I remember these discussions, you know, as a, as a high school student, um, having these philosophical discussions about the importance of international trade, particularly for the for developing countries. So, you know, if you want, if you have a rice crop, which was always my, you know, we need to produce more rice or, or better rice or have better varieties. Um, but my father's perspective was like, if you're producing better varieties, you want to be able to become an exporter. But in order to become an exporter, you need to be able to certify that your kilo or your ton bag of rice is actually a kilo by an internationally recognized standard. So uh, really kind of lucky to have these these discussions to really be able to contextualize the the multifaceted nature of, of impacts. You know, it's never about one simple component. It's about productivity, but then it's also about how you sell or how you monetize that that productivity. And and for many years now, your portfolio of projects and collaborators has been super international. And of course, that's going to continue at CIMIT with a particular uh, focus on low income, the needs of low income farmers in the developing world. Can you tell us a little bit about how that has been? You know, what, what is it like to be working with such a diverse range of collaborators and, and, how does the work you do impact the needs of those communities? Yeah, so for the, the past five or so years at, at NIAB, we've been working uh, quite a lot with partners in, in northern India in particular. Uh, and that's been really eye-opening and, and really important in terms of um, the crop, the wheat nitrogen challenge. So, so we're interested in the relationship between wheat productivity and nitrogen fertilizer because nitrogen is obviously... A really important input on the one hand, but also a polluter uh, and an economic cost to farmers. So that that work in India has been done with a number of partners and has really allowed us to to really stretch our thinking, I guess. So so we can really go from we have a genetic question, but what does it look like 
uh, in the field. Uh, and those relationships have been really important in doing that because it's allowed us to really work with the partners to understand the context and where the intervention points may be. And, and that's been very interesting because often we, we want the answer to be genetics because then we can go back into the lab and work it out and write a really nice paper and get some outcomes. But a lot of the time, the outcome isn't a, a genetic outcome. You know, the outcomes first, we need to reduce the amount of nitrogen in the system. Right. OK, that that helps you to really prioritize where you should um, be, be putting that research, research effort. And, and more recently about so we need an environmental monitoring system as well. So so that's been really interesting. I think for CIMIT, the CIMIT program is internationally focused. It's a global week program. Uh, and with a specific focus, um, particularly in our new Accelerating Genetic Gains project in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and there, I think your question about um, how do you prioritize and how do you um, work with with the communities there to understand the demands is is really important. So there's there's lots of elements of that. There's the elements of, of um, you know, consumer preference and the and the pr understanding the processing, you know, is that wheat going to be used for, for local consumption? Is it going to be uh, moved? Is it going to be processed? Is it going to be exported? Uh, all of those are very important considerations. Then you have the gender element. So many crops, there's a, there's a gender element on in terms of preference or who's, uh, who's doing what part of the, the cropping work, who's making the decisions. Also, you know, a, a move from rural to urbanization, you have this question of how will you engage and empower youth? So, so how do you actually kind of sustain the development of, of rural communities? Uh, and then you have the, the question about how does the system actually function and could it be improved in terms of the pure plant breeding and delivery of new varieties? So, so that's really at the heart of, of what we aim to do is to make sure that 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 process really takes into account all of those factors and, um, you know, and consolidates them and uses that as, as a data driven way uh, to make decisions on, on the, that are actually implemented in the breeding program or in the or in the decisions, you know, working with the agronomy teams um, to really kind of match the varieties with the, the production system. It sounds like you're not just working in international teams, but also multidisciplinary teams, maybe social scientists, um, processing experts, etc. Is, is that true? Yes, that's true. And I guess that's one of the, the really exciting things for me about, about joining CIMIT, that there is a sustainable intensification program, there is a socioeconomics program, and, there's, and it's really important uh, in these contexts. You know, it's not just about, I need a variety for my farm, which is in Cambridgeshire, and it has this level of rainfall, and this is the amount I want to spend on fertilizer. You know, this is really about a, a kind of global view on, on where the major impacts will come from. And you have to really understand that context. It's really important um, that the varieties are produced are going to A, perform in that environment, but also going to be acceptable and, and going to be um, useful for the, you know, the, the product profiles, the things that they have to feed into um, once they're grown, because, you know, it's only half the battle kind of growing the crop, as any farmer would tell you, you know, you've then got to harvest it and and essentially sell it into a into you know we don't eat 
a bag of, of wheat, we, we all eat a, a downstream product, you know, there's lots of different levels of processing. Um, but that's the reality. So that's, that's for me, one of the really exciting um, parts of joining Simit is not, is, is to have um, those interactions with the, the wider disciplines and then across the crops as well, and um, to be able to, to kind of have adopt best practice uh, in the breeding across crops. Do you think the plant breeding landscape is changing? And do you think it's changing to accommodate more of that cross-disciplinary work or indeed in other ways? The challenge I would say is that if you're trained as a as a plant breeder, it's sometimes difficult to to kind of really understand or really really grasp where you can assimilate this additional information because you know every additional bit of information you're accumulating, you know, you, you could take everyone's suggestions and quadruple the size of your breeding program, but everyone knows you can't do that because you're, you're, you've got a fixed amount of cost. So I think there, there has to be some, some rationalization of that. But I think, I think there's definitely a recognition that a more joined up approach, so understanding really what you want the crop to do at the end of the production cycle really should be informing um, not only the, the management of the crop once it's in the ground, but that that base material, the seed uh, and the breeding that's gone into the development of that seed. And that's definitely something that we're working towards within the, the, the Global Wheat Programme is having these pipelines, you know, that are really targeted at the market segment or the end use type that is demanded in, in the geographies that, that we serve. Plant breeding will, um, will move in that direction to, to be more to allow a more targeted uh, investment into genetic gains to really deliver an output that, that is kind of quantified, you know, that is kind of a predictable output for the system it serves. So it sounds like we're moving from an era of yield being the primary focus to the current stage, which has a much wider range of breeding priorities and a challenge of how do we trade them off and influence them all, to a future which is one of much more targeted interventions to influence those highest priority requirements in a very focused way. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yield is all obviously always going to be important. And, and for the CIMIT programs, the disease resistance package is, is very important because not everyone, it's really important to remember, not everyone has access to plant protectives. So so having yield and, and disease resistance is like a non-negotiable. But then, yeah, how do you bring in all of these other things that you want to have uh, and, and then make it targeted. So, I mean, these are kind of big, big challenges at the moment to really understand how to do that effectively and efficiently. What would you say has been the biggest challenge that you faced in your career so far? I've seen with, with COVID in particular, you know, this massive mobilization of energy and resources to really find, find a cure or find a, a way forward. Governments can take huge actions and and make really big interventions very quickly. I think the the climate crisis was also very high on the agenda before COVID. I think the the food production and food food and nutrition security agenda also needs to be there. Uh, And I think the challenge for for us as as advocates of, of crop improvement and the transformative value of agriculture in producing food uh, is really about having that message as high on the agenda as dealing with pandemics and, and addressing the climate crisis. Because I think that the food question and the agriculture question has to be there. And, and it 
deserves to have the same amount of light kind of shone on it. Lastly, are there any influences or influencers that you're particularly grateful for along the way? I I guess not in the conventional sense of mentors, but I'm really lucky to have a set of really great peer mentors. So they're people at the same stage of career and we we meet often to kind of really kind of share this vision of what we want the future to look like and that's been really really strengthening I think to to be able to draw on that network of of people in the same uh, stage of their career uh, really with a very similar shared vision about kind of an equitable diverse inclusive future which is really using a scientific lens to look at interventions in breeding to deliver impacts. So so that's been very uh, empowering for me in terms of my career development. It is a hugely motivating vision that you outline. And I think one that, that many people would would subscribe to and would also find hugely motivating. So thank you very much for sharing your, your story with us today, Dr. Alison Bentley of the Simit Global Wheat Programme. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Hannah. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. If you want to suggest people you'd like us to interview, contact me on Twitter at PBSInt or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well.